Momentarily for class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melting pot. We live in time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. Hello, welcome to the No Miki Show. I am No Miki Const. It is Tuesday. Yesterday we learned uh, that everyone is poor over the census numbers. The census, yes, that happened every 10 years, right? Remember that? It's hard to remember because we're in the midst of a pandemic and last year was what happened. Okay, so let's look at a couple of key takeaways. Political power continues to flow from the North and the East to the South and the West with people. But it is not nearly so simple as flowing from blue states to red ones. The redrawing of the congressional districts will be crucial. And that happens every 10 years, just to remind everybody. And that will depend much on a more detailed census, the the more detailed census numbers that we have not seen yet. We just have the initial publication. But we can already tell that much of the population loss is in traditionally Republican rural areas, and much of the population gain is in suburbs and mid-sized cities where Democrats have at least a fighting shot. But they've been ignoring them, of course. And fighting is the word. Democrats have left themselves in a vulnerable place. Our failure to build state parties will now really come home to roost. Now, let me just remind folks, in the Obama tenure, they pulled money away from state parties. I have said this ad nauseum. It has been my my talking points, my rallying cry over the last five or six years. The Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, took the money away from state parties, 50 state strategy. Remember, that was a Howard Dean line when he was chair of the party. They took the money away from state parties and they churned it into the presidential party because that's what happened under Obama. And as a result, a lack of a pipeline was built. And what happens when you don't have a pipeline? You lose locally against the Coke-funded pipeline that's happening in, state, in states across the country. So 1,200 seats were lost, that famous number. That's what happened top to bottom. That's how many seats were lost over the 10 years of the Obama administration. But it has been 10 years since Obama got shellacked, just about 10 years since those midterms. Remember that line? He said he was shellacked. Not like they changed any strategy after that. So here we are now with the new Democratic National Committee chair. And have we seen well-funded state parties in the midst of a census? We are catching up on the last 10 years. But are we really? Have we really changed our strategy? We are playing a 10-year game with our hands tied behind our backs. We have to start investing in those local parties, building local candidates, and taking back those state legislatures. And when I say we, I mean progressives. That's the shot. You got to get progressives involved in those parties like they are in Nevada right now to run more candidates locally, to get more uh, support to get more staffing locally so you can continue to win. Because it's not just about Democrats taking over and winning the state legislatures, it's about progressives fighting for what matter. This whole process has big implications for the country and fair representation. As progressives have built a lot of momentum fighting for control of traditionally Democratic districts. But one implication of these census figures is the likely creation of a new batch of swing districts, a new batch of swing districts that Democrats will be heavily and rightly focused on winning. So we will need a clear strategy for winning those districts 
without muddying our principles. The neoliberal third way of winning the middle has been a disaster for the country. Great for the consultant's paychecks, disaster for the country. We need a new politics of progress designed for the new political map that this census will create. And thinking forward into the future for the next political map so that we can fight off the Republicans. The key issues are our issues, of course, economic fairness, climate action, racial justice, gender equity. But I want to highlight a clip from two years ago, March of 2019, when Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez grilled former Secretary Wilbur Ross and called out the GOP's refusal to acknowledge the law of the census when they pushed to add the citizen question, citizenship question to the census, something that was taken off the census decades ago. Let's play that clip. And while there's all of this debate about whether a citizenship question should be included or not included, the question I have is why are we violating the law to include any question whatsoever in the 2020 census? General I believe Lady, she's out of fire, time, Chairman. But you please do answer the question. I, I don't have any need to respond, sir. You don't have a need to respond? I have no need to respond. Um, okay, well, I'm asking. Can you, could you an answer that question, please? Would you repeat the question, please? We are now in violation of the U.S. Census Act of 1974, which requires you to submit a specific report to Congress ahead of, of any changes that you find necessary. This question is not a reinstatement of the 1950 question. It's a change, which means that change requires you to send a report to us while the question is proposed, not before it is decided or settled. So my question is, why are we violating the law to include this question in the 2020 well, point, of, point of order, uh, I, I, we need to, at this particular point, the gentlewoman is talking about a statute that's been violated. There's been no enunciation of what that statute is. I don't even know what she's talking about. I'd be happy to provide it. I th yeah, I, I think she laid it out pretty nicely. Um, well, she said it twice. I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm serious. Um, give him. But, but in previous testimony, Mr. Sure. Chairman, he exactly. said that they've, they've submitted reports and, and. And there are three reports required. They submitted the first one and the second one but not the third one that is required to Congress. And it is in, this is here in uh, US code, 13 US code section 140, 141, population and other census information, subsection F3. And I'd be happy to provide that to you. Now, I, I noticed that all your, your, I guess those are attorneys back there, squirming around telling you stuff. Can you tell, maybe they help, they can help us with this answer. Did they tell you what the answer is to that? Um, Got a lot I, of people been... back there. I, I've been told by counsel that we have complied with all the regulations. I will take up with counsel the suggestions that have been made by the congressperson, and we will get back in due course on the record. Hmm. Oh, yes. Wilbur Ross and Mark Meadows. Okay, so now this sets the stage for a decade of Republican power, voter suppression, and racism just changing that one little rule, that one little question over citizenship. Of course, this happened during a pandemic, so there's a lot of other factors that uh, made it very difficult for people to fill out their census. And we saw that in New York because of 89 more people, 89 more people 
had filled out their census, New York may not be losing a seat. But but, you know, this is why Democrats need to get their act together locally. If they invest locally, if they run a pipeline of candidates from the ground up in rural communities and cities, mid-level, large cities on issues working people care about, care about, then we win. We lost the last decade. And look at our courts across the country. Look at the 200 plus ALEC designed voter suppression bills sweeping legislatures right now, many of which we could be controlling if Democrats had invested locally. Now these legislatures and Republican-controlled states will have a say in the next 10 years of our lives. It will take a lot of hard work to win back these legislatures. And I, I don't see that really happening, frankly, based on the failures of the Democratic Party to face their demons. They should have known after the first shellac shellacking to invest money into state parties. They should have known after the DNC's Unity Reform Commission, after over half the Democratic Party membership called for this, they should have known after the DNC debates where Tom Perez barely squeaked by a win over our hero of the moment, Attorney General Keith Ellison. They should have known when these issues were brought up publicly over and over again. And yet they just let it ride, ride out to the next election and then people get angry again. We have to invest locally or this kind of stuff happens and it affects the next decade the next decade of people of color, of young people, of working people. Republicans know that they are losing. And so this is why they invest locally. So I want to call out one other detail from these census figures. The decline of immigration to the United States, the arrival of new people to our country flatlined after the Great Recession, and it really went south, so to speak, during COVID. Well, before, of course, because that infrastructure was put in place by the racist president, and the money makers at the border to disincentivize refugees who have a right to come to this country. But of course, during COVID, uh, it went down even more. This is bigger than just the hostile attitude of our past president. This is millions of people voting with their feet on the American economy. Coming here just has not been as attractive. The low wages and rotted working conditions make the risks, and there are risks, seem far less taking, less worth taking. But not for everyone, of course. Many still cross the Rio Grande or find other ways to get here. But for many of that 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 golden door, hmm, those opportunities, just it's not as gleaming as it once was. That's what progressives have been saying all along. The census confirms it. We need to make the American economy work again for working people. That will make it attractive again, and that will make more people want to come to this country and work. And you know what? That is a good thing unequivocally good. Opening our borders is good for this country, not making it contingent on how much money you have or how much money your family has in the states, but making it open for all people, good for the economy and good for society. But we have real infrastructure building to do. When the Democrats don't invest, the Republicans design their control for the decades, far into the decades into the future, despite what demographic shifts say. We may be the future, but they have orchestrated the control of, future, of our future for decades to come, and we have a right to fight back. All right, we have an excellent show today, uh, an amazing show. We have Stephen Donzinger on, who has been fighting Chevron for years. He's under house arrest. He has been uh, Chevron. This is an, a fascinating 
case. They're saying it is one of the most high profile of all time uh, corporate warfare uh, cases. He has defended indigenous people in Ecuador, Ecuador when Texaco and Chevron uh, have basically wrecked communities in the Amazon uh, and they are taking it out on him, the legal defender of these people uh, who have earned the money legally. Uh, to, to which is not coming to them, but he'll explain. All right, later we have Piper and Simon. We're going to talk about today's news. But first, I know that we have a lot of people uh, in the chats. Make sure to put in your shout outs uh, and put in your super chats now. And I will make sure at the end of the show to get to them. That's how we roll here at the Nomi Keys Show. So jump in there, get into those chats, and we will be right back with Stephen Donziger. Uh, Stephen Donziger, it's such a tongue twister, Donziger, uh, is an attorney known for his legal battles with Chevron, particularly the Lago Grillo oil fields case, uh, which is in Ecuador. He's going to explain what happened, but he represented over 30,000 farmers and indigenous people from Ecuador in a case against Chevron related to environmental damage and health effects from oil drilling, uh, more specifically with Texaco and Chevron uh, took over. But but you you are live from your home where you are under house arrest. Uh, Stephen, thanks for, for joining us and for being so open with your, um, just your, I mean, your story because it's it's intimidating. I think you're on mute just as a heads up. Great there to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's let's just start with the the basis and then um, get to, to how it's affecting uh, your ability to represent people and, and um, obviously they're going after your power. But what, um, what did Texaco and Chevron, what, what was the situation that happened in Ecuador? So in a nutshell, back in the 1960s, Texaco went into Ecuador and bought the rights to drill in a huge area of Amazon rainforest that was home to five indigenous peoples, um, about 1,500 square mile area just south of the Colombia border. Um, over the next 30 years, they drilled in a way that ended up deliberately and systematically dumping billions of gallons of cancer-causing toxic waste into the rainforest, onto indigenous ancestral lands, into the waterways that the local people relied on for their drinking water. Um, Over time, the thousands of people became exposed multiple times daily to poison, to to oil, to vapors, to toxins. Um, The water they drank was poison. A lot of the food they ate was contaminated. The air they breathed was full of dioxins because they would flare the natural gas and and create this black rain phenomenon. So, you know, you go in a few short years to living a certain way for millennia, and then in five or 10 years, it's all gone and it's poisoned. And the indigenous groups were predictably decimated. Um, Hundreds, if not thousands of people have died of cancer. And the worst is the problem is still there. I mean, the, you know, Chevron ended up <clears throat> buying Texaco, so they own the problem now. They left Ecuador in 1992, but they left behind a thousand open air waste pits gouged out of the jungle floor that still have pipes running from the sides into streams and rivers that people drink out of. So it's gotten worse since they left. And, you know, I'm a lawyer and I work with a team of lawyers to help the affected communities. We ended up winning a huge judgment against them in Ecuador's courts, where, by the way, Chevron insisted the trial be held and where they had accepted jurisdiction. That happened in 2013. And rather than pay the judgment, Chevron threatened the indigenous peoples with a lifetime of litigation unless they basically quit the case. Um, They came after me 
in a bogus racketeering case that they filed up here in New York before a federal judge who denied me a jury. And, you know, here I am locked up in my house. But, you know, the story of how I actually got here is quite interesting. Yeah, let's let's get to that first in a second. Um, in terms of why Ecuador, how much were they ordered to pay? They were ordered to pay originally almost $20 billion. It was cut in half an appeal. So the, the judgment now stands at $9.5 billion plus interest. So, you know, depending on the interest, how it's calculated, where it's calculated, it's 11 or $12 billion, which, which, by the way, is a fraction of the real cost of this damage. BP, by comparison, put up a $20 billion fund within two weeks of the Deepwater Horizon spill which was an accident in the Gulf of Mexico. This was yeah. intentional. And BP has ended up paying $65, $70 billion total for that accident that, that was relatively you know, less impactful than what's happened down in Ecuador. Chevron hasn't paid the first dollar. Well, is that, is, is, is that actually a legal sort of strategy in, in that if they were to pay, even though it was a ruling, if they were to pay uh, this, th these monies, it would prove that they were, it was intentional that they were aware that the harm was continuing. I know it was a ruling, but is it some sort of, I, I don't understand how you can have a ruling and then you still face just by holding it up in courts. There's gotta come, there's gotta come a point where, I mean, wh where, what other courts are they going to if, if they wanted to do this in Ecuador? Well, you, you know, you'd be shocked. Um, I have no doubt. Most people would want to hear that corporations like Chevron just choose not to pay court judgments. You know, what they do, they can't ignore it, but what they do is they pay their legal teams and Chevron's used 60 law firms and 2000 lawyers on this case, largely to target me. They just pay lawyers to tie up courts and say, we can't pay you and they create these fake issues like I did something wrong and that needs to be litigated for 10 more years to determine whether I did something wrong to extort money out of them, which is their whole theory, which is completely false and has been rejected by 29 judges in Ecuador and Canada. So, you know, they can just create issues. And then these judges in different countries, and they've, they've spread this to, I don't know, four or five countries now, you know, trying to use their superior resources and their superior firepower to overwhelm the indigenous peoples who have virtually no money, thinking they'll just go away or thinking this will last so long that, you know, eventually they'll win not on the merits, but because of their legal might. You know, they've already lost on the merits. I want to emphasize that. Chevron lost this case. The communities in Ecuador won the case. I and other lawyers helped them win the case. And Chevron can't handle it. You know, they cannot comply with this court judgment. And instead, they vowed never to pay. They, they have they're a fugitive from justice. And they've been attacking me up here in the United States kind of as a foil. They want to use me to distract attention from the environmental crimes that they committed in Ecuador. They're killing people as we speak. Um, so you win this case and and then what what happens after that? Uh, you know, they, they, they start to, they're, they're ordered to pay the fines. Um, how does this translate to the states? What, what, how did the fight? Yeah, two things happen after we won the case. One is our team started to, since they wouldn't pay, we initiated what are called judgment enforcement actions, which is like if you win a judgment and the, and the person doesn't pay, you can go try to seize their assets to force them to pay, which is what we did against Chevron's assets in various countries, including Canada, where we won a Supreme Court decision in our favor in 2015. So that's was happening. While that was happening, Chevron got so angry at me because I was helping lead that, raising money for it, 
that they sued me and all 47 villagers from the rainforest who were named plaintiffs in the underlying case that we won back here in New York. And they steered it to this judge who's a former tobacco lawyer, tobacco industry lawyer, who denied me a jury. They paid a witness two million bucks to come in. They coached him for 53 days. And he came in and he testified that he saw me in a meeting in Ecuador where I approved the bribe of the trial judge in Ecuador. And it was just complete BS. There was no evidence it happened other than his words. He later admitted lying. Under oath, he later admitted lying repeatedly. But Judge Kaplan, who's this tobacco judge, you know, used that testimony to find that I had bribed the trial judge in Ecuador and it never happened. And it's been rejected by 29 other judges in Ecuador and Canada. But just this one judgment, Chevron has come back to him and and tried to, you know, pretty much destroy my life. They froze in my bank accounts. They disbarred me without a hearing. How, uh, how can they do that? I mean, what court is this in New York? Um, it's the US federal court in Manhattan. OK. And how are they able to do that? Like seize, freeze your bank accounts. I mean, you've had to surrender your. But in a nutshell, they shouldn't be able to. So why right. were they able to? And the reason they were able to is because the whole thing is cooked. And I know that might sound odd to an American who, who believes we live in a country that is governed by the rule of law. And by the way, I believe we are governed generally by the rule of law. There is this little pocket here in New York with Judge Kaplan and Judge Preska who are pretty much in bed with Chevron. They're like Chevron prosecutors and they keep denying me a jury and they let Chevron's law firm, Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher put in false evidence. And then they use it to you know, take my money. The reason they took my money is because, and by the way, I don't have a lot of money. So they took- You a mean freeze your accounts? Freeze my accounts, they yeah. took the money out of them. Put yeah. it in Chevron's, Chevron has all my money. Chevron actually has, so they, so they, they, they freeze your accounts and then they take your money and reward it to Chevron like they're the victims in this situation? Yeah, but that's the whole misdirection yeah. and, and BS of this whole thing. You know, Chevron committed environmental crimes and is killing off indigenous groups in Ecuador. They refuse to pay and they try to act like I and the Ecuadorian indigenous leaders somehow victimize them. So they're trying to turn the tables. It's a classic corporate defense strategy. So beautiful, poor Chevron. But it would never work because people, it's a joke unless these federal judges facilitated it, you know, and that's what's happening. And it's all hidden in like this technical jargon. Oh, you know, there's these discovery disputes and Donziger didn't turn over documents and therefore he's the criminal. And, you know, it's it's no different, honestly. I don't know if any anyone has read the book Red Notice by William Broder, which is about his experience in Russia. He was a US investor there, where Putin pretty much got jealous of how powerful he got. And they concocted a whole criminal case to drive him out of the country and try to jail him, but it was all fake. And what's happening to me, in my opinion, is the criminal contempt case against me that Judge Kaplan initiated is is fake. I mean, you know. It's all just cooked. I mean, basically, Kaplan took the charges to the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, the SDNY, and they rejected the case. That should have been the end of it. Who was the U.S. attorney at the time? Was it Preet Bharara? It was No, it was Jeffrey Berman. It was during the Trump administration. And you might remember Jeffrey Berman because he had the dispute, eventually had a dispute with Trump and, and left in the last year of the Trump administration. But in any event, they rejected the case appropriately, in my opinion. 
Kaplan, instead of letting it drop, appointed a private law firm, Seward and Kissel, to prosecute me in the name of the government. And he did not disclose that Seward and Kissel had Chevron as a client. And the person in that firm who he appointed to prosecute me, Rita Glavin, um, was a partner sharing in the revenue that the firm was making from Chevron and other oil and gas clients while she's locking me up in my own home on a misdemeanor criminal contempt charge. Nobody in America other than me charged with a misdemeanor in the federal system has served even one day pretrial at home or jail. And I'm 630 days without trial on a misdemeanor that has a maximum sentence ever imposed in this district of 90 days of home confinement for someone convicted, but I haven't even had a trial. Okay, so let's go back a second. So you have this Judge Kaplan who is allowed to, number one, appoint a private law firm. That is that normal? That seems- No, it's, it's extraordinarily rare and it's inappropriate in this situation, in my opinion. You know, there then are- they have a conflict of interest. circumstances where a judge can mm-hmm. appoint a private prosecutor when, for whatever reason, there's a conflict or, you you know, the public prosecutor won't do something. But you can't appoint a conflicted private prosecutor, someone (laughs) to attack the guy who won the biggest judgment against Chevron. So this is really deeply. Who else is going to do it, Stephen? Come on. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I think the prosecutor never would have locked me up. And they already looked at the case and refused to prosecute me. Okay, so he appoints a private prosecutor the prosecutor has is, is is conflicted out, but doesn't care. Continues to do their their job. Um, I, I mean, you've you've been under house arrest over a misdemeanor for over six hundred days. Uh, your banks are frozen. You've had to surrender your passport. And what's next? I mean, is there the, the way that our can't there's you a, just yes? So there's a trial schedule for May tenth on these six counts that he charged me with, and I think I have total legal and factual defenses to all six counts. I think if there were a jury, I would be acquitted. Um, I think the US attorney refusing to take the case is, is pretty strong proof of that. Um, he appointed- To a, this day, uh, under the Biden administration, still? Well, I'm not sure I know what you mean. Let me just say- So, so the US attorney, uh, uh, let's just, uh, sorry. You, let's, know, let, you just US said that the US attorney, There's no US attorney in New York yet. Right. He or she has not yet to be Because Berman has. Yeah. Okay. Because Biden came in and he's still appointing his U.S. attorney. Exactly. Okay. So, but this isn't, the U.S. attorney in New York has nothing to do now with this. This is all a private law firm prosecution. And we are asking the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, um, to intervene and take this prosecution out of the hands of the private Chevron law firm and prosecute me Directly. I mean, I'm probably the only lawyer in America begging the DOJ to prosecute me. I need a professional who can treat me in compliance with what the law requires, not someone who's acting in the private interests of Chevron, which is what Rita Glavin and Judge Kaplan are doing. And the other bizarre feature of this is Judge Kaplan assigned the case to a colleague who's a member, a leader of the Federalist Society to which Chevron is a major donor. And she's my judge, and she's the one who already decided I should be locked up for over 600 days without any evidence being presented in the trial. No trial has happened. And she has also denied me a jury. 
And she's going to be my sole fact finder. She's obviously prejudged the case. Look, I can't get a fair trial. That's the bottom line. This is not a trial as the trials are commonly understood. The entire purpose of this trial, from my point of view, is to go lay a record so I can appeal the inevitable conviction, after which she will try to put me in jail. I'm convinced of this, to justify having kept me locked up for 600 days. The maximum sentence I can get is six months in jail. So this is a criminalization of advocacy. It's the criminalization of lawyering that challenges the fossil fuel industry, challenges a major polluter. It's the kind of work that I think is critically important to save our planet. In other words, we can't have the Chevrons running around the world destroying the Amazon and expect to deal with climate change. You know, So I also see this as a major litmus, te litmus test for the Biden administration in terms of, will they deal with the climate issue effectively? I mean, Merrick Garland needs to really seriously look at this and, and take it back because you cannot have in America a corporate criminal, a corporate criminal prosecution never happened before. And once this happens, and by the way, trust me, this is a playbook of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, you're seeing this more and more with the tax on protesters at Standing Rock. There's been racketeering lawsuits against Greenpeace. And these are slap lawsuits. They're not designed to really resolve anything on the merits. They're designed to harass and silence critics. Slap meaning uh, in reaction to a lawsuit that's been presented. Slap means, well, it's a kind of an academic term. Slap stands for strategic lawsuit against public participation. They're basically illegal lawsuits designed to harass people. You know, it's like Chevron has all this money. We'll pay 10 million bucks to lawyers to try to crush Donziger. And the, and the, the gain from that is to silence him, not to get money from me because of anything I've done to them. You know, so these are illegal lawsuits, but they're sort of hidden in, in traditional claims, tort claims and legal claims. So they're sometimes hard to spot, but you're seeing them more and more. And they're often filed by, you know, um, Trans Energy Partners filed a bunch of these against protesters at Standing Rock, you know, the pipeline company. So you're seeing this more and more. They're copying what Chevron did to me. And it's a very dangerous threat to freedom of speech in, 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 in our society and just kind of the nature of our society. I mean, do we want a society where lawyers get locked up for winning environmental lawsuits? That's what's happened to me without a trial. Is, is, this is definitely, um, you know, part of their playbook. I mean, it's not just, uh, it's not just oil and gas. It's part of many corporations' playbooks. Uh, you see real estate developers doing it. You see politicians who speak up uh, suddenly getting, you know, complaints filed at the others. This is, you know, classic, classic corporate warfare. Um, as you mentioned, Putin, of course, uh, used this strategy. But in your situation, I mean, what seems so crazy to me is the bad press and the and and Chevron knowing very well that the administration uh, would would turn and and granted this all took place before Trump. Um, why why do they think it's worth it? They're dragging this out. You're making a case against them. It's not like they have public approval ratings that are great, and it's not like we you know the, it's not like fortune is on their side in terms of, of climate change. So why, what's the point of this? I think from, okay, first of all, Chevron is a complex organization that doesn't have one viewpoint. I think the people running the policy vis-a-vis -vis this kind of thing, Hugh Pate, the general counsel, Michael Worth, the CEO, some of the board members have a very myopic view of what is in Chevron's enlightened self-interest. I think, I don't think this is in Chevron's self-interest at all. Um, there are several very significant Chevron shareholders who have challenged management over the, their mishandling of this litigation. So I don't think this makes rational sense. Now, 
I think psychologically, they're so angry. Remember, this is an industry that's dying. I mean, you know, 50 plus percent of the market value of the big oil companies is fake, in my opinion, meaning it's based on the amount of supply they control that they're never going to be able to access because of global warming. This is an industry in decline. There's serious calls to nationalize the oil industry to phase it out because it's killing us. And the idea that they would have to deal with a guy like me, by the way, where I'm locked up, I live in a two bedroom apartment with my wife and teenage son in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I work out of my kitchen, okay? And with a lot of other people around the world who also work remotely. But collectively, we crush them in court and they have the best law firms in the world. They're deeply angry. I think they're deeply threatened by the judgment that we won because the last thing they want to do in a time of industry-wide decline is to pay a few billion dollars to indigenous leaders anywhere in the world and in Ecuador, that's what would have to happen. So I think they're just furious, but I don't think it makes sense. I mean, what Chevron ought to be doing if they want to survive is investing in clean energy and transitioning the company into something productive not attacking and locking up lawyers. But, you know, dying industries do crazy things, sometimes desperate things. And that's what I think they're trying to do to me. Um, how does Ecuador's politics play into this? Is there, we had a question from our chat saying that they recently decided to privatize its central bank. Um, does that play a role? Do Does the leadership um, and the tides turning in Ecuador make a difference at all or are all, I mean, your cases are done there, well, but go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, the role of like politics in any, how it impacts court cases is always kind of interesting to some degree, right? For example, when the BP spill in the United States, President Obama, like me, he said, they have to pay. I'm going to put a, my foot on their neck until they pay. And suddenly there's a $20 billion fund put up voluntarily within two weeks. Politics can affect court cases. Now, in Ecuador, the case is over. There's an independent judiciary like here, and we won the case. And we're now taking a judgment that's been affirmed by Ecuador's highest court into other countries to force Chevron to comply with the rule of law and pay the money it owes so the indigenous peoples can clean their environment and hopefully save a lot of lives. So the politics of Ecuador don't really matter. However, I will say this, Chevron is constantly in Ecuador, visiting the U.S. ambassador in the U.S. embassy, lobbying whoever the president is, trying to get whatever advantage they can to turn the, the you know, the government of Ecuador against its own citizens who have won this case. And it's, it's, it's gross and it's inappropriate. And we have documents to prove it. I mean, the stuff they've done is mind blowing. And I'll, I'll say this, like in the middle of the case in Ecuador, they hired a former State Department official who wrote a memo about how they should go to the State Department or the US government and use the State Department that is our tax money to offer a $700 million package of benefits to the Ecuadorian government in exchange for them turning against their own citizens and killing off the case. Okay, this is how they think. And they're fundamentally grifters, right? Think about this. There's all this issue of oil industry subsidies, you know, that Congress has been dealing with since the Biden administration came in. In Ecuador, they took out all the oil, made all the profits, socialized the costs onto these vulnerable communities, and now they have the cleanup tab and they don't have any money to clean it up. That's called grifting. And you see this time and time and again with Chevron and some of the big oil companies. I mean, Chevron is trying to use US taxpayers to buy off the government of Ecuador. 
And now in my criminal prosecution that I'm facing, this is the coup de grace as far as I'm concerned, the U.S. attorney, that is the public prosecutorial authority, turns down the case. Judge Kaplan appoints a private Chevron law firm. Well, guess who's paying the private Chevron law firm to prosecute me in hundreds of dollars an hour for three lawyers? We are. We are taxpayers, and they build over $500,000 to prosecute me for a misdemeanor. For a misdemeanor. This is a company that grifts. Unreal. And how the heck are taxpayers subsidizing the nation's first corporate prose criminal prosecution against a successful human rights lawyer? It's shocking. And it's, I'm, I'm going to guess that they didn't have an open bid contract <laughs> for, right. that, for, for that firm. Because exactly. I bet you I could find a lawyer who could do it for 200 bucks an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For a misdemeanor. I mean, that's basically who you would normally go to. You know what the law in New York is? If you're a defense lawyer and you represent someone charged with a misdemeanor and you get appointed by the court, you, you are only allowed to be paid a maximum of $3,400 for that defense. And they've already billed over $500,000 for my prosecution. I'm, I'm totally believable. Um, when, we, when you go into appeal, right, who's, how, just for, for, for the non-legal experts here, who would be the judge? How, who's going to oversee this? Because I, I heard you mention something about Kaplan again. Uh, when does Kaplan get out of the equation? Let's be really simple here. <laughs> Seems like Kaplan's the problem. No, we're up to him. He, he's never going to get out of the equation. I mean, he, he, he lives for this. He's, he's almost obsessed with me. And it's everyone, everyone who watches the case notices it. I mean, John Kecker, who was my lawyer, one of the great lawyers in America, you know, Purple Heart, clerk for the Supreme Court, he withdrew from representing me. And in his withdrawal motion, he called, he said, Kaplan has let this whole case degenerate into a Dickensian farce. And it's true. And it's, it's this case, when you really look at it objectively, is driven by Chevron, driven by animus, driven by hostility. It has nothing to do, the U.S. portion of the case I'm talking about, it has nothing to do with a neutral judge carefully considering the facts and applying the law. Kaplan is a, is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a Chevron prosecutor. And he has turned his power as a federal judge loose on me. And, you know, if I lose this contempt case, and I think it's inevitable that I will, that I don't have a jury and I'm being prosecuted by a Chevron, I mean, by a Chevron lawyer and Chevron link judge via the Federalist Society, it's cooked. So there will be an appeal. There is a federal appellate court in New York called the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and we'll, we'll see what happens when I get up there. Um, how about the legal community? Have, has there been a uh, you know, have, have lawyers come together in support of you? What's what's the community support looking like? Been a massive amount of support for me in the legal community and beyond. Um, for example, 55 Nobel laureates issued a statement demanding my immediate release and dismissal of the case. Just today, by the way, six congresspersons U.S. are sending a letter to Merrick Garland with the Department of Justice demanding this case be reviewed immediately. And with the idea that the private prosecutor will be terminated and the DOJ will take the case. Um, AOC and Jamie, Jamie Raskin and Jim McGovern and Corey Bush, uh, Tlaib, um, I mean, uh, Jamal Bowman and um, I, uh, Tlaib, I forget her last name. My Rashida Tlaib, Rashida Tlaib. Mm -hmm. all signed this letter, okay. okay? And it's going out today, that's big. Um, because really the only thing that's gonna protect my 
human rights, my legal rights, is public scrutiny and public outcry. Judge Preska, who was the Chevron Link judge, who was appointed by Kaplan, um, has already terminated Zoom access to my trials. They do not want public scrutiny. She's going to limit how many people can get in because of COVID. Every pretrial hearing in my case has been available by Zoom. Hundreds of people have been listening in. Suddenly the trial comes, she's terminating Zoom access. I mean, even the Supreme Court has Zoom access, okay, to its proceedings. The other two trials in, in New York this month of April had Zoom access. So, you know, why is she terminating Zoom access on the eve of trial? There's an international trial monitoring committee, which includes uh, Stephen Rapp, who's Barack Obama's former ambassador for war, war crimes. He's a war crimes prosecutor. You know, he's like never seen anything like this in the United States, such a violation of, of defendants' due process rights. He's written the court to get a seat so he can monitor the trial. Judge Preska has just ignored him, hasn't responded to his letters. You know, there's a concerted effort by Preska and Kaplan to prevent public scrutiny of this trial, to prevent people from bearing witness to what is a, a complete violation of my due process rights that is happening as we speak, my detention being the most obvious example, but there's other things as well. So we need to demand that I be protected. We need to understand that there's an intimate connection between my situation and the situation of the affected communities in Ecuador who won the judgment. That is, they're trying to deprive them of their one of their main lawyers. And they're locking me up because they don't want me, in my opinion, traveling and helping other lawyers in other countries go after Chevron's assets. Chevron is is terrified of this, terrified of me. Terrified. Are you going to sue them back? Can you sue them back? For no, you just of have no. Course, of course, of course, yeah. I, but like Judge, it ended up before Judge Kaplan because I'm in New York, and he just threw it out. You know, they're called they're called counterclaims. Right. And um, so the reason I hesitated there is, of course, I would love to sue them back. But it seems that, that I've been unable to get a fair hearing in New York in any court. And also to sue Chevron would require a level of significant resources so lawyers could actually do it effectively. It'd be fascinating with discovery. Do not have. But I will say this. We have gotten discovery from them anyway and found some very startling things. Like there was an email in 2009 from a high official who said our long-term defense strategy is to demonize Donziger. I mean, they never planned to litigate on the merits. Oh, yeah. You know, um, you know th th there's emails from the general counsel that talk about the need to go after me on every level, lobbying, media, politics, law. Um, and that's what they've been doing. I mean, they've been carrying this out for 10 years and it's because I continue to fight, you know, they keep raising the ante and ultimately they want to put me in jail and they've sort of created this framework, you know, to put me in jail if it succeeds. Now I'm hoping it doesn't because I think there's a lot of pressure not to do, not to go that final step given how obvious and, and ugly is this is starting to look. But, you know, you never know. I mean, these are creating these, a martyr. I mean, well, that's I mean, you know, a lot of people look, call it what you want. I have, you know, 100 times more support now around the world than I had before they locked me up. And, you know, that's not good for them. And, and look, I'm not I'm, ha I'm I need the solidarity. I need the support. And by the way, we have a website, freedonziger.org, which you should go to sign up for our Freedonziger.org. And you can also donate to our legal defense fund. But, you know, 
I don't think it makes rational sense for Chevron to have done this. I mean, I think it's a massive overreach. I think they thought I'd lay over and just give up, and I haven't. Instead, we're coming back. And the world is learning about this more and more. The media has been um, really helpful. A lot of the independent media, ironically, the New York Times has totally ignored me, as have the networks. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we have a lot of support right now, and we're gaining more and more support every day. This is this is such a, an incredible and horrifying uh, story of the state of corporations, as you said. So many, you know, oil and gas, of course, is under attack, and they're losing uh, the narrative. But um, picking a fight with a lawyer is always a tough one because, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever fought with. I was raised around lawyers. It, it, there's a disassociation. The way that you've spoken about your case with such clarity, um, clearly it's emotional. Clearly it's traumatizing as you've been under house arrest and it's affected your family and you know your your bank accounts and and your ability to travel not just outside of your home but internationally as well. Um, and yet, after this many years, you're still speaking out. It was about the case, you know, with such clarity. And I think that is extremely dangerous for them as well. Um, and without fear, knowing exactly where you stand within the law. Um, good and bad. So uh, we wish you the best of luck. We have all the information out there. May 10th is the next uh, hearing, oh, right? Thing real quick. So of course, please. please, please. Yeah, there's a rally in front of the courthouse in the morning of May 10th. And then we're asking people Where's to that? come in and watch the trial. It's at 500 Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan. Excuse me, I know your audience is. That's okay. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> not global, but whoever's in New York or near New York and or friends, please spread the word. Come down to court. Um, there's going to be some incredible people. The head of the Shinnecock Indigenous Group from Long Island is coming in traditional dress, and Roger Waters, who's the you know the founder of Pink Floyd, and all sorts of activists and others who care about human rights are going to be down there speaking out about what we believe is a really an unfair trial without a jury, with a biased judge, and we're hoping that that will make some difference. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for your courage. Thanks for speaking up, and thanks for educating us about what's really happening um, because it is dangerous and it sets a it's a, sets a horrible precedent uh, for twenty twenty one Biden administration, et cetera. So we appreciate you. Thank Good you. luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, uh, we have to do a special announcement because on uh, May 3rd, on Monday, just shifting gears a little bit, uh, but equally as important because. He is going to be covering, his team are going to be covering truly significant stories that are not just here domestically. We do so much domestic politics here. Sometimes we touch on international, uh, but there is not enough time in the week. And we are just so grateful that our friend Arun Chowdhury, who's a regular on Thursdays, uh, he is going to be launching his show called The Committee. The Committee program with Arun Chowdhury is a weekly show appearing on this channel, the same channel on Twitch and YouTube. It premieres this Monday, and it's on every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern for a solid three hours. Yes, uh, Arun is a veteran of the Obama White House media team, but he was also the creative architect of the Bernie 2016 campaign. Uh, he is going to have on a variety of campaigners, activists, politicians, historians, uh, and his own team at the committee, which is a separate entity as well, to break down global politics, specifically from a practitioner's perspective. Why does that matter? We're talking strategy. I mean, that is what this channel is about, is we try to get to, we highlight stories from all over the world, all over the country, but it's important to to like break down the strategy and the tactics. Um, 
there is so much information out there. Uh, there are great resources uh, by experts on policies internationally and historians and even journalists, but very rarely do you get the tactician, the person, the, the, the organizer, the strategist talking from an honest uh, space. And that is something that Arun has shown is our, on our show. Uh, he is gonna talk about how we all can learn how and why forces of the global global left have come together in solidarity in response to the rising tide of the nativist right, as well as the existential threats, based on what Stephen just said, that face our planet. This is an internationalist fight. Uh, we are aware of it. And so we're so excited to have a run launch his show at 3 p.m. Uh, go check out his show, 3 p.m. live on Monday. That's the day that we're not on. Uh, and we're going to be, uh, I think it's going to go up on Patreon as well. I don't think we have his Patreon, Patreon page yet, but we'll share that when it comes up. All right, we will be right back with our fabulous panel. We have Simon Rode and Piper Winkler here. All right, Simon Rode is a socialist writer. He's a former organizer for Bernie Sanders 2020, and he's a producer over at our show here at the Nomi Hugh Show. And Piper Winkler is a Harvard YDSA co-chair. Uh, she was part of Team Bernie at Harvard, and she is also at here uh, producer on the Nomi Key Show. I can't speak right now. I've not had enough water in between these breaks because we're moving so quickly. All right, guys, we're going to do a rapid fire uh, panel because that incredible interview, I completely lost track of time and normally I pay attention, but that was an important subject. So uh, let's start off with something that is also important, please. We have to understand the threat of this man because like we mock him, many mock him, I mock him, but Joe Rogan has the largest podcast platform in the country. I don't know about the world. Uh, he is an important voice that I've run into too many people pre-COVID at bars who cite him for information. And my own family members at gatherings have cited him for information on science. So let's not joke about Joe Rogan, but let's play this clip of Joe Rogan telling us once again about science, something he has no experience in. And people say, do you think it's safe to get vaccinated? I've said, yeah, I think for the most part, it's safe to get vaccinated. I do, I do. But if you're like 21 years old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I, I go, no, yeah. you're, are you healthy? Are you a healthy person? Like, look, don't do anything stupid, but you should take care of yourself. You yeah. should, if you're, if you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well and like, I don't think you need to worry about this. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. But there's a uh, lot of jobs that will tell you you need to have this. Well, that's what's but starting to happen now. People are worried about them doing it for their children. And we talked about this earlier, yeah. there's the, 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 that you might have to have your, your children vaccinated. And, you know, I can tell you as someone who's both, both my children got the, va the, the virus, it was nothing. Oh. I, mean, I hate to say that if someone's children died from this, I'm very sorry that oh that happened. God. I'm not... I'm not in any way diminishing that, but I'm saying the personal experience that my children had with COVID was nothing. One of the kids had a headache. The other one didn't feel good for a couple of days. Yeah. Like maybe, I mean, not feel good. Like, mm, like no, no kills, big deal. No coughing. No, no. But no he killed his grandmother. So, you know, <laughs> the kid didn't get sick, but granny, granny Annie uh, died because the kid went to go sit on granny Annie's lap. Okay. What's more dangerous? I would say steroids that he's taking that have infected his brain over the vaccines that just, just throwing that out there. All right. So much to unpack. Let's start with Simon. 
because he's off mute. Well, uh, <clears throat> I mean, what is there to say besides like, don't get your medical advice from a podcast host? Um, I think the real question that I ask when I look at this is how is it that, that so many people agree with him and are listening to him and like take his advice over the official medical advice provided to us by the CDC. And I think that a lot of it is rooted in this sort of anti-government sentiment and this sort of distrust in uh, official government statements um, that has been, you know, brewing over decades. And I, um, and I think that's really the thing that needs to be fixed here is, you know, the government needs to do a lot more to regain it, um, the people's trust. Um, so that people like Joe Rogan, when he says something like this, everybody's just like, what the hell? You're so stupid. What are you talking about? Uh, which should be the natural response. Well, what's so crazy to me is, okay, aside from that, in the old days, um, you used to have ed editorial oversight. There's a reason why, like people are like, oh, stop, stop, stop trolling him because you're, you're censoring him. No, you're not. When you're a reporter, when you have a platform on a major company website, as much as I hate the power of corporate media, they also have a responsibility to the public. I mean, this is a pandemic. If you're not going to do it now, then when are you going to institute standards? I mean, whether it's not being a racist, a Nazi, or a science denier. <sighs> Piper. I mean, I, it's a really interesting rhetorical move to say that you're not diminishing something and then just go, like, going full steam ahead and diminishing it. I think this is such an, a disappointingly individualistic stance to take. And I mean, surely enough, I think a lot of people have faced like incredibly individual, have had incredibly individualistic experiences with the coronavirus in terms of not getting the support that they need, in terms of not having access to perhaps uh, enough uh, fair wages, not having access to the PPE to, to keep them safe at work. So that's one experience of really having to go it alone during the coronavirus. But Joe Rogan is talking about an entirely different kind of going it alone, which is thinking that you're young enough or healthy enough um, to be able to take care of yourself and that you're totally isolated from all the other people that you interact with and that the choices that you make don't affect them. We know that this is false data just has clearly borne out that what he's saying isn't true. I'm 22, by the way, and I'm a very happily vaccinated member of society. It's frustrating. And I think that Simon arrives at a really good conclusion, which is first of all, that the government should really learn to, to back up and, and like strongly message on this collective collective uh, understanding of going through things like the coronavirus. And of course, then this has to be backed up materially, not just saying we're all in this together, as I think Biden has done several times, because I mean, in, in fact, we're really not. A lot of people are being forced financially to go it alone, and they shouldn't have to do that. And then that will make individualistic arguments like these seem all the more hollow. Um, it would be amazing if you could get I don't know, an MSNBC host or maybe even a well-known Democrat to just maybe Biden to call out. I mean, the way that they do with Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, I mean, it is just as dangerous for him to be saying these things on the largest podcast in which I don't know what the percentage of Democrats that listen to it are, but I know it's a significant chunk. It shouldn't be political. But when when Simon says the government needs to back it up. Anybody who's going to listen to the CDC is already listening to the CDC. What you need is to have somebody who is not used to picking these fights make the rhetorical fight and say, all right, Spotify, you know, this is not, it's not acceptable. This guy is the largest platform in the country and got how much money? $60 million? $100 million? I don't know how much he got for the podcast. And he's being rewarded. This is dangerous for, it's dangerous for democracy. It's dangerous for world health. It's dangerous for, uh, I, I mean, equity. You, we can't have that conversation about equity if you're still having people like this 
idiotically like pushing out false narratives which spew into red America, as we know. Um, I want to, on, on the topic of equity, because I do think it's an incredible point that you brought up, Piper, uh, especially given the news in India right now in which of those who are being tested in India, 60% are coming back positive. Uh, pyres are showing up all around the country, of course, for um, for the bodies of victims. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a crisis. And part of that has to do with the lack of equity um, and 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 the apartheid that's happening over vaccines and not just vaccines, but of course, uh, testing as well. But don't worry, Bill Gates has a solution. He does not think that the United States should share the vaccine formulas. Mr. World Health, is it because like his next tax tax scheme is gonna be um, doing this? I don't, I, I can't figure it out. Like how is somebody who's Mr. World Health going for this? Um, I think he just exposed himself a little bit now. <laughs> what do you think, Simon? I mean, I think that he made like tens of billions of dollars since the pandemic started, right? He's, he's, he's a capitalist. He's sort of like a predator on society. Like, why are we listening to what he has to say with regard to sharing vaccines, you know? Because he has a stake in it. It's not that we want to listen to what he says. He actually has a financial stake in this and has, in one comment, he can actually move a market. I mean, that's how dangerous these people are. Piper? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really good argument for why philanthropists are not enough and why philanthropy is often rooted. I mean, look at the, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex, all the people who are obsessed with, you know, making big shows, pouring wealth into um, into real uh, societal problems where, where people are genuinely suffering and need support and turning that into a vanity project for themselves. It's deeply sick and twisted. Bill Gates has been at this for a very long time. And I think this is a very, very clear sign that Obviously, philanthropy is not going to, to solve problems, but, but is very, very invested in perpetuating them. Simon said it perfectly. It's all about making sure that the stream of money coming into Bill Gates's pockets from the suffering of people over, all, all over the world who could be given vaccines from the U.S.'s stockpile of AstraZeneca, for example, just to make sure that nothing better ever happens uh, for them. That's basically what his that's what his class interest is. And that's exactly what he's doing. Well, it's interesting. because I mean, he's probably going to he's probably going to bid uh, on those AstraZeneca vaccines, I'm guessing, and then distribute it and use his mechanisms to distribute, you know, I, I, that's just my my guess on the grift here. But um, he's just saying the formulas, it's the formulas. Okay, you know who's gonna give that formula? Uh, your, your enemy, Putin, who's got his Sputnik vaccine. I'm gonna guess that Putin's gonna offer it. I mean, if, that, if they wanna play this global politics, you know, geopolitical game, that's what's gonna happen. You're gonna have another country freely you know exert themselves and then you're gonna have some sort of territorial war it's a new it, frontier yeah. it's, go ahead simon what oh and i'm just gonna say it just it should read to all of us as totally dystopian that yeah. we have someone who is like letting people die so that they can get richer and that this is like an un uncritically sort of presented um point of view it's, it's really gross and really, it's, it's just, it's crazy that we've all become so numb to it. Yeah. The fact that like we have literally like corporate executives who are writing corporate policy and it doesn't even make headlines anymore because it's just, it's just so normal that we have people like Bill Gates um, being able to influence the ways that, that markets and everything works around the world so people are dying. I mean, over, I don't even know what the number is now. Over 500,000 people have died in our country in the last year. And mm -hmm. we haven't even processed that yet. I mean, how many, 
communities have been devastated, ripped apart, families have been ripped apart. Uh, and, and, and we're, as a culture, I think we're dealing with PTSD and simultaneously they're having these, as you said, these completely disconnected, inhumane conversations out in the open. And we're like, oh yeah, that's what they do. Meanwhile, we've had a massacre globally. There's, it's, it's currently underway still. And our politicians and, and our corporate America and our media is covering it like it's just another day. The way that they used to cover foreign disasters, which was inhumane and disgusting. They're now covering day-to-day -day politics of people dying um, that way. All right, I wanna shift gears because uh, if there's one thing that's true, it's Rose McGowan uh, is spicy and she made some news. Uh, Rose McGowan, of course, was, I believe the first woman, or I shouldn't say the first woman. I'm sure he went after many women, but she was, I believe, the first actress to actor to step up and speak out against Weinstein, if not one of the most vocal women who spoke out against Weinstein. Um, and she was not believed. So let's play this clip of Rose McGowan. And, and I do believe Democrats most especially are in a deep cult that they really don't uh, and know about and aren't really aware of. And I leave the Republicans alone more because I do respect people more that are like, this is what we are, this is what we're about, this is what we're against. Whereas I find that the Democrats are really pretty much almost against all the same things. They're against um, changing the world for the better. And, and they're for keeping a system in place oh in a cult too. On the Nomiki show, we are able to have two thoughts in our heads at the same time. <laughs> so Democrats, I don't know which Democrats she's talking about, meaning the DNC, the establishment, every Democrat, does that include AOC? Does that include Cory Bush? I don't know. Um, but what I will say is that that host, Tammy Bruce, is a former Democrat who, once she got her Fox contract, turned Republican. So it's an interesting uh, scenario there. All right, Piper. Yeah, I have a couple bones to pick with us, although, you know, I understand the general sentiment that Democrats put up a facade about being progressive and having the interests of the working class in mind, which, of course, we, we know isn't you know isn't true, as I believe we've mentioned. On Don't the show say the quiet thing out loud, Piper. Come on. <laughs> I know. Um, I take issue, first of all, with the fact that you never have to hand it to Republicans. I don't have any particular respect from them just because they're so upfront about their, their vitriol and hatred for working people, for people of color, uh, for, for women, et cetera. We all know the list and it goes on and on. I think that you know the statement that we've just heard in, in a way pits the strategy of the Democrats and the Republicans against each other. I think the Democrats are very, are very clear-eyed and, and very aware of what they're doing. And I think that the way they work operates in tandem with the way that the Republicans are upfront about the fact that they're, again, incredibly hostile to uh, working class progress. And even then, I think the Republicans often use a, an extremely demented, twisted message about class to make it seem as though they're for the working people, when we know that that's not true either. So, you know, while I understand what the basic, the, the basic sentiment here, and I, I agree with it, I also think that what we're really looking at is the parties working pretty closely together, or at least understanding how the other operates in order to keep elites in power. I mean, how amazing would it have been, Simon? We're getting some feedback. Do you have a headset, maybe? How amazing would it have been, Simon, if we um, heard her say very simply, Democrats are just like Republicans. If she's gonna play that game, why shouldn't she just say, Democrats are just like the Republicans and mic drop and leave. 
Yeah, I mean that that would have been pretty great, wouldn't it? Um, it and that's really the, that's really the, the heart of it too. You know, it, it's um, you know as Piper was talking about, um, you know, we never have to hand it to Republicans. Like, you know, if we were going to say Democrats are, you know, bad or like in a cult, right? We could say the same about Republicans, and we ought to. Um, and you, you know, it, it's most appropriate to say that we live in like effectively a one-party system that serves capital. You know, and and I mean at Cult is not maybe a word that I would have chosen to use, um, just because it's super loaded. But I think, like, I think of what uh, sort of Mark Fisher described as capitalist realism, right? Which is like this widespread notion that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but it is now also uh, impossible to even imagine a, a coherent alternative to it. Um, right. And I, I think people who buy into that notion and who you know celebrate people like uh, Elon Musk and imagine that he's going to like save us from climate catastrophe, like these sort of delusions, um, you know, there's like a cult-like feeling to it. Um, but yeah, I, th I think just acknowledging that both parties uh, are adherent to this crazy ideology um, is, is really that, that's the root of it. And you know, was what what really struck me was as much as she has been publicly demonized, and I don't want to discount her experience um, in stepping forward, and maybe that has framed some of this narrative for her based on her experience. Um, you know, people get into electoral politics for their own reasons um, based on their own experiences. Uh, they get into the progressive movement or different movements for their own reasons. But what was very odd about this one is um, it felt very privileged. You know, how can somebody post-Trump era knowing the, you know, he took a wrecking ball to society, to any sort of democratic institutions that were slightly functional, whether it's the courts or, I mean, we, we just covered a really big story. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how that would have gone down uh, in, in recent years with different justices, judges. Um, with that being said, how could you ignore the border? How could you ignore the fact that the police unions supported Trump and all of his cronies? And I'm not saying that the Democrats wouldn't have done some other things, but what I'm saying is it was such a point of white woman privilege. And I say that as a white woman, for that to come out of your mouth on Fox News was, I think, I think it was dangerous. I think it was ill-conceived. And frankly, I don't even know if we had the right, if, if the right intentions were there, because there's a lot of language you could have gone into Fox News saying, um, I, I probably, you know, as I have before, criticized the Democrats on Fox News, but then equally called Tucker Carlson a racist <laughs> or whatever. There's lots of ways you can rhetorically come at it. All right. Piper Winkler, Simon Rode, final thoughts. Sorry, we didn't have a ton of time today. Good. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks so much for having thanks us on. For all, thanks for doing the work. <laughs> all right, guys, we have a couple of shout outs. Mini Doctor says, am I right th in thinking Stephen is still under house arrest? Yes, he was under house arrest. He's been working from his kitchen table every day with his team. Uh, he's in a two bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, as he said, with his, I believe, children and his wife. Um, been a long time, over 600 days, I believe. Uh, all right, Ray Lee says, I think this case against Stephen Donzinger, Zinger, I can never say his name, can be called corporate lawfare. Money and power will never surrender willingly. Absolutely. Waskley Woger, thanks for the love and strength. Thanks to you too. Uh, Ian Kinzel says, Donzinger's case gives me hope because it shows we're up against the establishment forces who know time is on our side. True. The trick is lasting that long. Absolutely. And that's what's so impressive. And, and he's just been very clear-minded about 
uh, this given the circumstances he's living in. Uh, and you know, and he's chosen his time on this planet and his law career, uh, which is extremely privileged, right? Especially as a white man to fight for other people. And so they had to come at him with a different set of strategies that they, you know, they don't come out with other people. He, he was a vehicle, a tool to defend indigenous people. And uh, the, I mean, the, the communities in the Amazon are, are being wrecked. I mean, it, it has such obviously a, a greater effect on the globe as well. Um, all right, Prairie Fire says, hi Prairie Fire Kowalski says, everyone spam Joe's show with get the shot, be a man, I agree. All right, thank you to all of our moderators for, for building those algorithms and keeping these live chats troll free. I'm sure the Rogan people are going to come in and the Yang people the next day. And I don't know who else after that. Um, but we will see you tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on YouTube, on Twitch. Thanks to everybody on Twitch and YouTube. We love you. Uh, yeah, tomorrow. And don't forget, Monday, we have a whole week, a whole week until the committee show launches. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be international. It's going to be three hours long. You will get your fix on Monday. All right, stay in solidarity, everybody.